Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Are you tired of working nine to five? Are you tired of your dreams going unfulfilled? Are you still letting fear stop you from pursuing that business idea? Well, all that stops today. I'm Shawnee Sanders, host of The Girl Take No Podcast, a podcast for ambitious women looking to ditch their nine to five and take the leap into entrepreneurship. Each week, you will learn the mindset, methods, and actionable steps other successful entrepreneurs took to make the shift from full-time employee to full-time entrepreneur and live the life they always dreamed of. Now let's get into today's episode. Hey guys, welcome to the Girl Take No Podcast. I am your host, Shawnee Sanders. And today I have with me Dr. Nathan Riley. He is a certified OBGYN, but he also likes to refer to himself as a recovering OBGYN. We're going to get all into the story behind that. Nathan, welcome to the show. Thank you, Shawnee. It is is a real pleasure to be here, to be here with you. This is... uh... It's a very snowy day where I'm at, and um, the Wi-Fi just came back on right in time. So divine intervention. Oh, yeah, <laughs> definitely. Listen, we understand when we do virtual things, sometimes we have connectivity issues. So I get it. Trust me, <laughs> I get it. <laughs> so listen, today we're talking all about you know, women, pregnancy, fertility, um, home birth versus birthing in the hospital. We're also going to get into conversations around the black mortality rate, the mortality rate around black women with during pregnancy and also during childbirth. But before we get into any of that, let's talk about the recovering OBGYN. So give me the story behind that statement. Well, you know, like a lot of us really smart, uh, you know, well-intentioned people going to medicine and to the end of that, you have to really make a hard, a very hard decision. It's kind of like being in a relationship where you get past that, like level one Eros where you're just having sex all the time and it's just, (laughs) but then at some point you wake up and you're like, Oh no, maybe I'm, maybe we're not attracted to one another anymore, or maybe we're not in love yeah. anymore. And a lot of people go back and try to find that. That's how affairs happen. That's how polyamory emerges. Yeah. A lot of people just end up in this like nasty cycle or you do the hard work to move through and then maybe transcend to like old people walking in the park, making out at, you know, 85 years old. Um, for me, when I emerged at the other end, I had to make a decision as to whether or not I was going to continue doing this thing, or was I going to acknowledge maybe a better metaphor would be being lost in the woods and not in, in having to accept that this was not the right path, and mm-hmm. then going back, maybe backtracking a little bit in order to find my way out. And that's, that's in essence, I, I think, sort of the summary of my entire life, is yeah. that when you start to see things that are happening and you don't seem to be very... Uh, able to to correct those things or make a difference in improving those things, like let's say, you know, um, equity within our healthcare system. You just have to be honest with yourself. And I I was like, there's no way I'm going to be able to fix this from within. There's just so much systemic racism. There's just mm-hmm. inequality through and through. Even in how the hospital staff and these different healthcare professionals are treated, 
And I have ultimately at the end of the day, I'm just a, a, like a cog in this machine where I don't really have much power at all. And not that yeah. I want power, but it would be nice to know that my 14 years of education and a half a million dollars in medical school, school debt gave me some platform to say, I don't like how this is being done in the hospital that is employing me and I want to see things done differently. You just get knocked out and they replace you with somebody else. So yeah. the recovery part of my story is having to just wrestle with the disillusionment that investing so much of my life into this has led me not to a very comfortable, cushy $350,000 a year or more. It actually has been trying to figure out how to do this in order to provide that equity and the sort of compassionate bedside care <laughs> that yeah. isn't really being rewarded or incentivized to do in the system. Yeah. Yeah. You know, what made you choose the OBGYN field versus anything else? What what made you gravitate towards that? Well, you know, when you consider how the Western medical education system is, it's the German style education system. We adopted it from Europe and mm -hmm. it's four years of college, four years of med school. Then you do your residency training, which is your specialty, and you can do subspecialty, which is fellowship training. Um, every step of the way, you're incentivized to answer questions correctly on the test. There's five options, A, B, C, D, or E. If you guess mm -hmm. correctly more frequently than your, your colleagues, then you're rewarded with more tests. And if you do better than the other, you know, your colleagues on those tests, you get rewarded with more tests. And eventually <laughs> we have narrowed down and weeded out everybody who wanted to be a doctor, but who isn't able to think critically. Yeah. You don't need to think critically to be a doctor. You need to answer the test questions correctly based on the examiner's preferences for what is right and wrong. So mm. what we have is a bunch of doctors in you know, in the world, especially in the United States, who are not critical thinkers. They're not creative. They're just good at following directions. And I am terrible at following directions. <laughs> so, <laughs> the first birth I attended, I remember it was this Indian family um, who didn't speak a lot of English. And mm -hmm. they came into the hospital and they were in like raging labor, had all of their kids with them, three or four children. And this, this woman just there was no pain medication involved. She didn't understand what was happening. She was able to tune it all out and, and just went inward and roared this baby out. Like one grunt and scream and moan and this baby emerged. And I was like, holy shit, there's not going to be an answer to the test question here. This is just <laughs> magic. And so I, uh, the mystique around, uh, around this unfolding of whatever the hell this is, you know, this mm -hmm. is beautiful and it's also scary and it's also intense and exciting and, and just awesome. I was like, ah, this is something I'll never fully understand. So that's why I chose that path. Like I'm never yeah. going to through this test. And that curiosity has, has served me well, I think over the years. Yeah. Listen, to see life coming to the world is, is gotta be a kind of a cool thing. You know what I mean? <laughs> to be on the opposite end of it, you know, and, you know, talking about birth is so many, it's, giving birth is so risky. You know, and a lot of people, I don't think, on you know, really talk about that part of it. They just talk about, oh, we're giving life, we're, we're having a baby. Nobody talk about a lot of the risks that go into it. And so I want to talk about some of those risks because I know you're a big advocate for um, home births, yeah. and which I want to know more about too. Because when I think about home birth, to be honest with you, I think about... 100% natural birth at home. I think about nothing but pain. Like that's my view of it. It's like, you probably, you're not getting no meds. You're just in your home. Um, I'm thinking about that JLo movie in a pool, like, right. <laughs> you're kind of like squatting and you're pushing, but it's all natural. 
Is home births natural or is there, do some of them require some type of, you know, epidural, do the acts for that? Are they all potentially natural? Well, in the home birth setting, you can't do an epidural. So you can't okay. do spinal or intrathecal, um, well, we, the sort of general category is regional anesthesia. So that's where mm -hmm. we put the catheter into the epidural space, which is outside of the spinal canal, but just adjacent to it. Mm -hmm. Spinal, where you put a bunch of medicine right into the cerebrospinal fluid surrounding the spinal cord, which is usually what we do if we have to do like an elective C-section. We just give you one mm -hmm. dose of medicine um, versus being in labor and having an epidural, you have a continuous infusion of that medicine. You can't do those things in the home birth setting. Mm. So in that regard, if you're determined that you do not want to feel anything below your nipples or be able to move your legs or walk or change position, having a hospital birth is, is or having an epidural um, mm -hmm. is only possible within the hospital setting. Yeah. So from this, this, the, the standpoint of pain management options alone, being yeah. in the hospital is better. However, uh, better in the sense that you have these other options. However, people who have who give birth in the hospital oftentimes have more pain due to the distractions, the interruptions, the constant mm -hmm. stuff that's being done to you. For example, synthetic oxytocin, it's called Pitocin. It mm. generates much worse contractions. Like they, the oxytocin that you make in your brain governs over everything from orgasm to conception to the fetal ejection reflex, which is when your baby just is like eventually just launched out of the vagina at the very end mm -hmm. of the process, letting down milk from your, your breasts during breastfeeding. Oxytocin governs over all of that. Mm. But synthetic oxytocin only hits the, the, the uterus. So, so when you have natural oxytocin flooding through you, there's a lot of endorphins that kind of come through that. That's the connecting molecule, the love hormone. Yeah. Um, if you're constantly inter being interrupted or being poked with needles or, you know, spoken to poorly, especially if you're a woman of color, you, you maybe maybe aren't be receiving a lot of compassionate, respectful language. Yeah. Spoken to, you know, that when you're stressed out, pain is worse. Oh yeah. Being in the home setting where everybody's there on your turf and you may not even have mm. a there until you're ready to push your baby out. Mm -hmm. When you're in that setting, pain management actually becomes less of a of a debacle. Because you actually are in a maybe in a birth tub and you're just sitting in warm water while your body is doing this thing. You've got your mm -hmm. you know, your man or, or whoever your partner is is feeding you ice cubes. They're yeah. making you breakfast. They're putting on whatever songs you want. You've got candles that you've got diffusers with essential oils. You're grooving in the tub. <laughs> yeah. Maybe you're you could be masturbating. Like you could do any of these things in order to help get the labor process going, mm -hmm. which is really possible in the hospital. So mm. you give some and you, and you get some whenever you start kind of waffling between the hospital environment and the out-of-hospital environment to have a baby. You know what? You, you touched on something that's real. A lot of the pregnancy is the experience itself, the environment that you're in. And you're so right because so often we see women who you know, go to the hospital, have babies, and they get treated so poorly. You're right. They get treated so poorly where the overall experience isn't good. And tell me, what is your thoughts on... Um, you know, the videos that were going around TikTok called the X and they had the women that was in labor and delivery nurses <laughs> who did that whole ick thing and really kind of like talked about patients and how they are during pregnancy. And you know what I mean? It's a lot of going on during pregnancy when you're in a hospital and stuff like that and the pain management level and the questions you ask. And just for them to come out with that video, I thought was just such poor taste. I'm like, we all have things in our job that we don't like, right? We all have that, but to put it on a video, 
and to put it out was just such poor taste. So what was your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think it was, I think it was very unfortunate. And, you know, I think it would have been easier had it just been like a bunch of like white nurses who are maybe mm. largely, you know, largely black community perhaps or something. And then we could say yeah. oh, it was just like, they're not nice to black people or they're racist yeah. or they're whatever. This was a, a mix of all ages, all sizes, mm -hmm. races of nurses who were all equally doing this gross thing which every doctor in every hospital, especially on maternity units, has experienced and have been and has actually partaken in in the in, you know in the past. Yes, so the culture in the labor and delivery sort of environment is number one. It's very high stress, so a lot of people mm -hmm. are under super high stress. They're eating really junky food. They have long shifts. A lot of them are night shifts. That video that I saw was probably a night shift team because mm -hmm. your like, circadian rhythms get out of whack. Your stress levels are all over the place. Yeah, we have a lot of time for self care, and when we don't care for ourselves, we tend to project that onto our patients. And I think that's mm -hmm. a common issue within maternity care units across the United States hospital system. But I mean, not but and <laughs> <laughs> as soon as you feel compelled to. Um, to um, make fun of ridicule, ridicule in such a mm -hmm. as soon as you feel that way to your, towards your patients, you should eject yourself from the system. Go find a new job because obviously yeah. there's a lot of self-love and you're projecting whatever this is onto your, your patients. There was, a, you know, it was pretty common in when I was in residency, I did mine at Kaiser. So it's probably mm -hmm. one of the more diverse patient populations, Kaiser in, in Los Angeles. So mm -hmm. I would say there, there was a white minority there, not only amongst the hospital staff, but also the the women and their partners who were coming in. A lot of mixed race couples. I mean, there was it, all of that was like not an issue. Mm -hmm. And despite that, despite the diversity, despite the life experience of many of these nurses and the doctors and whatever else, they would be laughing and joking about the patients while they were in the staff lounge together. Yeah. Like, and I was the guy that they would actually want to go and see them. Like, oh, they have a birth plan. Like, okay, mm -hmm. like, your birth plan here. Like, you're gonna fly the airplane. Like, okay, like tell the air, tell the tell the uh, the the pilot how to fly the plane. You know, and yeah, stupid ass jokes which don't belong anywhere in any human conversation. But it's almost like this: they objectify these people. There's jokes thrown, and then they walk in and they're like, "Hey, honey, how you doing?" And they come out mm -hmm. and they're like. Ugh. Can you believe yeah. it? Oh, and like that is not a culture of healing. That was a big mm -hmm. part of why I had to leave the hospital because you cannot get away from that. There are a lot of good nurses, a lot of good doctors out there, but there are far more um, twats that are just that are <laughs> in this whole experience for the people that they took an oath to care for. And um, so that video did not surprise me, unfortunately. It wasn't even yeah. like, I can't believe they're saying this. It was like, finally, somebody caught this on video. And somebody had the nerve to post it on TikTok. Yeah, they, they all get fired. Like you yeah. guys, shame on you. That's how I, I mean. Feel. Seriously, yeah, it, it was it was very disturbing to watch. Let me ask you this: When it comes to, because I myself didn't give birth myself, but when it comes to giving birth, do you think it should be? an option for people like maybe your doctor should start with your doctor to say, Hey, you have an option to do, you can have give birth in a hospital or you can give birth at home birth. Do you think we should start maybe standardizing that as an option? Because it is more of a 
common environment, it seems. It seems like you said more so on your terms. You're surrounded by the people that care about you. And you seem like, I mean, the way you described it just seems so much more intentional and soothing to the mother to be able to give birth in a surrounding that you know, being surrounded by people that you know. Do you think eventually we should get to a place where doctors should be able to give a patient both options? Yeah, I mean, they have that type of system in Europe. You know, mm. a lot of my friends who have given birth there. Of course, in Europe. A midwife, of course, in Europe, right? Yeah. Having a midwife, especially, yeah. you know, reasonably low risk. Now, risk stratification is where we actually run into an issue. Mm -hmm. In our country, being black, um, having a history of smoking, being, yeah. over, being over the age of 35, a lot of those are, are, are small little factors that would compile into a high risk picture. But does that, mm. does that really make sense? Is it really so high risk that you need an expert in disease within pregnancy in OBGYN? Yeah versus a midwife who is really um, quite skilled in a lot of things related mm -hmm. to high-risk pregnancy, but they're also so well-versed in just allowing natural physiologic birth to unfold. In Europe, they understand this. And actually, in some ways, it's kind of like the default. Like you're yeah. going to get a midwife unless you have a really good reason to use an OBGYN, which, you know, 70% of our training is in surgery. So, um, we, if you don't need a surgeon and you don't have a disease, pregnancy itself is not a disease, Shawnee. So everybody yeah. listening, you are not um, sick. You do not have a medical procedure coming up in nine months. If you're pregnant, you're pregnant. It's like mm -hmm. having a or adrenal glands. You have this incredibly um, complicated organ system that's developing and something's going to happen in nine and nine and a half months after you conceive. That doesn't um, preclude having a non-doctor uh, take care of you. And Europe understands this. Most of the world understands this. Here in the United yeah. States, the media, and even what you said about home birth, you know, it sounds like a really, really hard thing, painful thing to have a home birth. Yeah. Have had home births after their hospital birth, they're like, I will do that a thousand times <laughs> more compared to what happened in the hospital. Yeah. You know, larger tears, the labor lasts longer. There's more stuff being pushed on you under mm -hmm. duress while you're contracting. Hey, do you, you think it's time for a C-section? Like, I don't know. I guess, Doc, like you asked <laughs> a million times tonight and it's four in the morning and I haven't slept for three days and you haven't let me eat. Let's just do it. Fine. Whatever. Like, I just need to get this over with, you know? Yeah. Um, when, when we start to, I think that a big takeaway from this interview for whoever's listening or watching mm -hmm. is that if you have any sort of um, inclination to have a midwife or to have a home birth, explore all of those options. Yeah. Because right now, one third of babies in the United States are coming by C-section. One third up to one, let's just say one third, that's roughly what it's at. Um, one third of pregnancies are being induced, meaning we're trying to get your labor going unnecessarily for unclear reasons. Um, early before you reach your due date or even beyond. Um, if we want to change the landscape of maternity care and improve the outcomes for, for women of all um, ages, shapes, creeds, mm -hmm. races, we have to actually bring back the midwifery care model because doctors treat everything like it's a pathology. We treat everything like it's a surgery waiting to happen. Um, mm -hmm. and so it needs to be fixed. There's no problem to be fixed in pregnancy 85 plus percent of the time. And um, if we can adopt and uphold traditional midwifery, 
not medical midwifery, which is just diluted obstetrics, but truly traditional midwifery, a lot of which actually is rooted in the, what, used, what we used to call the, the, uh, the granny midwives. Now we call them granny <laughs> brought over from West Africa, from the Caribbean. Yeah. I mean, the lineage, uh, this wisdom that has been passed down through 50 generations, you know what I mean? Yeah. Of, of written human history. This this is what I mean by traditional midwifery. If we can uphold that and, and re-engage with that in the United States, every one of our metrics is going to improve. I guarantee mm. it. There's no way around it. It just is better. Why do you think most doctors will push a C-section? Why do you think that that number has been so high going up lately, I guess? I think it expedites the process. Um, mm. I think that there's a lot of legal considerations. You know, a lot of people in the United States will sue when something bad happens. But the problem yeah. with pregnancy and childbirth is sometimes babies die. We don't yeah. like it. It's not nice to sit with our grandfather dying, let alone a baby dying. It's, yeah. it's really, really hard. However, we are mortal. We're all going to die. And sometimes babies don't make it through childbirth. That's a part of the deal of being alive. Yeah. And when something bad happens, we love to be able to blame somebody. You know, we want to sue the first person that has deep pockets in a lot of dogs yeah. <laughs> sued nowadays. And they're mm -hmm. not getting sued for the C-section that they did. They're getting sued for the C-section that they didn't. Mm. Third, big, the big thing is that back in the 50s and 60s, something called fetal heart rate tracing was developed. This technology was, was developed in order to ascertain, is the baby in trouble? And if we intervene now, based on these findings on this tracing, can we prevent cerebral palsy, which is really a, a, a sequelae of anoxic brain injury in, in the childbirth process? We thought that that mm -hmm. was the cause. So we implemented this type of, really, it's like a software system, but it's, it's a monitor that goes on your belly and monitors the baby's heartbeat beat to beat. Mm -hmm. When we introduced that, we thought it was going to decrease cerebral palsy rates. And now that it's become nearly universal, like in the early 2000s, late 1990s, Mm -hmm. We haven't seen a change in the cerebral palsy rates, but we have seen an increase in our C-section rates, a, a, a steep increase. So we have an unvalidated software system, we have medical legal considerations, and we have just the realities of being on call and you not wanting to have to pass this patient over to the next oncoming doctor. So you just say, let's just do a C-section. I don't think it's going to work. So that's an impatience issue as well. But again, nobody in the system is incentivizing doctors to get their numbers down. Even when I was still in the hospital system, my C-section rate was about 5%. In the national wow. average, it's 30 to 40%. Some doctors have a 60% C-section rate. Wow. It's, it's, yeah. So you can ask your doctor, what's your C-section rate? But when, mm -hmm. when they've a lot of interventions to determine if it decreases or increases C-section rate, like um, the ARRIVE trial was a, a study back in 2018 that looked at induction, getting labor going at 39 weeks versus just waiting until the baby comes on its own, mm -hmm. they a lower C-section rate. Well, when you're, when you're looking at doctors and tabulating how many vaginal births do they have versus C-sections, they're going to start using their skills differently. They're going to mm -hmm. track their numbers down because they don't want to be embarrassed by how many C-sections that they're doing. Yeah. So wow. those are the three big reasons. I, I mean, there's, there's plenty, plenty, plenty. Yeah. Financial, maybe. Maybe the problem is that a C-section is a lot more hospital um, sort of, uh, there's a lot more cost, you know, up front with the surgery itself. There's a lot more people involved, sterilization, mm -hmm. a lot more cost. And then of course, two days maybe in the hospital afterwards. Yeah. However, if you 
if you contrast that with just allowing labor to unfold and being more more patient, you may save a person two days in the hospital from an unnecessary induction process where we just can't get the body contracting regularly. So maybe you do save yourself time or you save the hospital money, but I don't think it's just a financial incentive, which is what a lot of people a lot of people think, but it's far more complicated than that. Yeah, yeah, it sounds like it is too. Wow, I didn't even know it was a, you could even ask a doctor about their C-section rate. That That's something new. Definitely appreciate that one. I, I think most doctors should be pretty upfront about it. Um, yeah. I just think it's not something we know to ask. You know what I mean? And that's another question. It's like, we really have to become, I'm a breast cancer survivor. And I realized that going through that experience and being diagnosed, it's like, you really have to be your own health advocate. Like you have to educate yourself, no matter if you're pregnant, whatever it is. And being able to have the knowledge to know what questions to ask is so important because I felt like I didn't ask the right questions. And had I known after the fact, had I known what I know after, before, after, then it's like, I probably wouldn't have been able to be, right. you know, I was in a preventive stage, so I was really happy about that, but I probably would have been able to detect it earlier had I asked the right questions. So even when it comes to being pregnant with a child and going through childbirth, you know, is it important to, to educate yourself and know all the things you can to be able to ask your doctors and be able to have options? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if, if you, you know, I, I think that, uh, so there's a really great doctor down in Atlanta, Georgia. I don't know if he's still mm -hmm. practicing in the hospital system. Cause I know he was doing things so well. And he's, he's also a uh, military vet. He's African-American. He's got mm -hmm. a bunch of great little kids and he was a high risk OB serving Atlanta. Mm -hmm. Very, very popular doctor named Dr. Brad Boots Taylor. And he, he um, published a book called shared decision-making and it was really relevant to what you're saying, which was, here's a series of questions to ask your doctor. Yeah. And there was like 10 questions and based on how many points, how many yeses you had or, or whatever, you know, above a certain number, like above six or seven, that's a good fit for you. If it's below six mm -hmm. or seven, you need to find a different doctor and, um, or a different midwife or whatever. And through that B score, it's not like you're asking people personal information. You're just kind of asking them to understand how do you show up for people in the world? Do mm -hmm. you uh, respect a person's autonomy? Are you respective of, uh, do you, are you respectful of their um, I don't know, desire to do certain things a certain way to have less interventions, to have more information or less information, whatever. When you can, when you can ask these types of questions, it's not relevant what their C-section rate is. It's what is relevant is if I need to have a C-section, are you, are you only going to recommend it if it's absolutely necessary? Yeah, that's where, exactly. I, you know, I, I, I will also say, you know, Shawnee, since you are a black woman, Mm -hmm. I don't think our society does a great job of giving black women or any women for that matter, a, an opportunity to speak and to just stop and listen to what their experience was. Exactly. So, so you know, um, my wife brings this up a lot because, you know, she and I are very, very great communicators with one another and we've known each other since we were 15. When we talk about, you know, advocate for yourself and this and that. Yeah. Um, always certain that it's very, very easy for black women to advocate for themselves for a number of reasons. Not only have you guys been sort of at the bottom of the totem pole, mm -hmm. you know, below black men, below white women, and certainly below white men as our political and our other institutions have treated you for. Mm -hmm. black. But as a woman, as a woman, for all women, 
you you guys have been sort of conditioned to be agreeable, to be compliant for fear mm-hmm. of this drunk asshole at the bar, you know, treating you poorly in public, yep. maybe even in hurting you, maybe murdering you, maybe raping you. So yep. there's a, a deep conditioning there, especially as a woman of color, um, to just kind of go with the flow in order to not rock the boat. Yes. And so... So I, that's why I said before we started recording, it's hard for me to bring this up because I could literally walk into uh, any store and just like speak my mind and nobody there is going to really have a problem with it. No, exactly. Doctor, <laughs> you know, yeah. Uh, yes, I am a doctor. So like I could literally say whatever I want and people are going to probably defer to me. Mm-hmm. So um, anyways, this is a bit of a long kind of rambling answer, but it's because it's not a very, very simple question. This yeah, really, really hard for women of color, especially in maternity care. Um, yeah, but it's hard for all women to advocate for themselves. So that's like really what my brand is all about is is like kind of reclaiming your power, and that is uh, a long process of deconditioning from what people have told you you can or can't do in the world. Yeah, and, you know it's so true that you know they act as if we don't have a voice, and when we do speak up and try to say things, you know, about what's going on with our bodies, you know, our doctors for some reason don't take us seriously, you know, which leads to that high mortality rate of black women in during childbirth and pregnancy. And it says here that I got, you know, I've got some statistics that black women in the U S are three times more likely to die from pregnancy or childbirth than any woman of any other race. And I just found that to be so just like mind blowing, Yeah, which tells us that, yeah, there is systemic racism in the healthcare system towards African-American women and that they don't, doctors are not listening to us when we talk about what our health is and what we're doing, you know, and what we may be feeling. I can remember a doctor not paying attention to me when it came to, you know, how, you know, maybe some of my breast exams came back and I'm like, well, it seems kind of funny that it keeps coming back. Um, unconclusive. Is there anything going on? No, it could just be scar tissue, just be that. And so it's like, they kind of brush us off, not really listening. I not wanted to investigate further, maybe thinking that, oh, they're just being paranoid. Yeah. And I just don't understand where that comes from. We can have, and it was so funny when I read more of this article, we can have the best insurance and still not be heard by our doctors. Yeah, I mean, the famous story was that Serena or Venus, you know, one of the Williams sisters, mm-hmm. is sensational athletes who have their health dialed in. They are they are big, beautiful, strong, yeah. eloquent, successful, rich, well connected, mm-hmm. and even they're not listened to. So anybody yeah. out there who who feels um, like, wait a second, Shawnee and Nathan, I respect <laughs> like. I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna have to ask you to like go a little deeper here and just think mm-hmm. about not only the 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 dilemma around the lack of voice that we give women, no matter what their background, no matter what their their you know <laughs> their their uh, taxable income is, or, exactly or <laughs> level or whatever. Like getting an education is not the not the only part of it. Having money mm-hmm. is not the only part. You know, bleaching mm-hmm. skin is not the only part. There is a an, an important patriarchal hierarchical system in place here, mm-hmm. and the white ruling elites have been dictating a woman's value in our society from the earliest written human history. We're going back to like ancient Sumer, several thousand years before Christ. Yeah, and 
as our cosmologies have changed and women have been upheld, their, their role in the healing professions has actually flourished. And as we've seen devaluing of women, the societies have fallen. We've seen it in all of the major empires over, over um, you know, the millennia. Mm-hmm. It should not be a surprise to anybody to understand that this chronically sort of the subjugation, the subversion of, of women of color or any woman really for that matter yeah. over you know, thousands of years has led to this chronic low state of stress and, and sort of the unknown as to what's going to happen to me, especially in the hands of our captors, you know, which. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Yeah. Elite males, largely. Yeah. Um, and that chronic low, low inflammation, low state of inflammation and stress leads to all of the other complications that have contributed to increased maternal morbidity and mortality um, for not not just black women, but also for their babies. Yeah. As, you know, in the in the easily um, the, the easiest uh, the e- most easily um, what's the word sort of the most highly regarded country, let's say over the past hundred years, in, you know, mm-hmm. which is the United States, not only the wealthiest, but the land of opportunity and freedom. Yeah. Everybody wants yeah. to come here because you get to live a certain way. It is not so. No, United States, it just isn't. No, it really isn't. And, you know, we just, and it's so crazy how we've been talking about that statistic for a long time with black women, but yet it still hasn't changed. And I think that's what's so crazy to me about it is that we talk about it, but yet what is there to do about it? So what advice can you give to a woman of color when she's pregnant? And, you know, what does she need to do in order to make sure she's heard by her doctor? Is it start with the selection of your doctor? Well, the first thing is I think everybody um, assumes that it's too expensive to have a home birth or to hire a concierge yep. doctor. That's what I do. The problem with that that statement is that you are paying for your health care through your taxing, for the, through our tax code, mm-hmm. you're paying through your premium, which is likely through an employer, or you might be mm-hmm. paying privately in the marketplace. You mm-hmm. have co-payments. Every time you go for in for an unnecessary doctor visit, unnecessary scan, unnecessary urine dipstick, whatever, you're paying a copayment. Yeah. Can't get around that copay. Can't get around that copay. They're going to hunt you. (laughs) Then you have your baby and you have to reach your deductible before your insurance even kicks in. Mm -hmm. People in our country are so convinced that insurance is the best way to get healthcare. Despite the fact you're routinely let down by these insurance companies, who are paying their CEOs, look it up. We're talking yeah. millions of dollars at the expense of, of people who otherwise can't afford this important care that we have. So the first recommendation I have is really consider, do you feel best about the maternity care system? And if there were other options, would you consider those other options? Yeah. The second, the second thing to consider is Check your conditioning and what your preconceived notions are about midwives. 
especially if you have a midwife who is is a similar background to you. If you're a black woman, you know, mm-hmm. who grew up in a relatively poor household, let's say, um, mm-hmm. with a lot of siblings or maybe, you know, parents that separated, whatever else, you might find a midwife who can totally relate to your story. And that is the type of person that it's going to check off all those boxes on, doc, on Dr. Um, Boots Taylor's um, B-score sort of mm-hmm. um, assessment. But but really the questions to ask, no matter who it is, you might find that there's a, a, a white or an Asian or a Hispanic midwife who just sees you for the story that you've told up until the point where you start your care. Or a yeah. wife, hell, maybe a, a bearded white male physician like me who just has doing his very, very best to give everybody an equal shot at getting the best care possible. Mm-hmm. If that person is spending a time with you, if they're letting you speak, if they're listening and they're reflecting back to you, like they're not just nodding their head and doing the things that they learned to do to show that they're listening. They're not yeah. on the computer, but they're like with you. You can feel when a person's really with you. That is the person who's going to help honor this sacred process, which is far more than a medical procedure which is childbirth, um, mm-hmm. they're respectful of your partner, of you and how, how your family unit operates. That is the best care possible. Most women nowadays who want to have a home birth are at l- you know like within 20 minutes of a major hospital. Mm-hmm. So you're not that far from the, quote, safety, so to speak, of an operating room. But yeah. have full respect, somebody coming in on your own turf they're not going to be kicking their shoes up and saying, I'm the, I'm the captain of the ship. They're going to say, mm-hmm. how can I serve you? That is really what us doctors took an oath to do. And midwives do it even better than we do. So yeah, that's the advice I have for people. I honestly, Shawnee, I'll, I'll, I'll end with this to, to finalize my answer there. I stay away from hospitals at all costs mm. unless absolutely necessary in order to save my life. Yeah. And scenarios in pregnancy are actually far less likely if you're not in a hospital where you're going to be on this medical train, a cascade of interventions. There's financial sort of uh, incentives. There's there's family incentives. There's the culture of the practice there. You may not have much say as to over what what happens. And that cascade of interventions is contributing to our C-section rate. It's contributing to mothers and babies dying as much as it perhaps is saving them through the heroic measure, measures that wouldn't have been required had we not in, been involved in the hospital in the first place. A lot of yeah. this bad stuff that people hear about does not happen in the home birth setting. Everything from vaginal tearing to your baby needing resuscitated to um, the horrible pain that you had alluded to you know, initially, there yeah. are options out there, especially for women of color. And there are a lot of great midwives and doctors out there that are willing to meet you wherever you're at in order to make it affordable for you so that you don't have to be pinned to this option of having a, a birth within the medical industrial complex if you really desire a home birth. So those are my two cents. <laughs> yeah. You know, listen, I'm, I'm glad you said that because like I said, I think people need to understand that it is an option. You know, it's not as scary as some of the movies may make it. Um, and it, like you say, it's on your own terms and you write so much that happens in the hospital. And we all know that, you know, it's a false sense of security that you're, that is the safest place there because a lot of people die during childbirth in the hospital, you know, and so and get the bad treatment in the hospital. So being able to know that there is another option where you can have your child on your terms, I think is absolutely amazing. And it works. Yeah. You know, let's talk about fertility. 
um, especially in women who have it difficult to re- to conceive. And I can put my own story out because I I'm a, I'm a woman of a certain age. I'm 48, and according to my doctor, of course, my time is done. <laughs> and and what was so I think what was so upsetting and for me to be talking about this right now is probably the first time I'm talking about it is because when she said it to me, which was a few years ago, actually, I must have been maybe 43 at the time when me and my husband got married and she said it to me so matter of factly. And I, I asked her about it. I said, you know, I'm, th- I'm thinking about having kids. I'm 43. I know I'm older. I know as we get older, our eggs diminish. And she was like, oh no, it's over for you. You can't do it. No, you, you're going to have to use donor eggs. And then she said it and like you said, getting that experience with somebody, a doctor, and she's kind of looking at a pad and just telling you no, not really looking at you and just telling you no, you can't, it's not going to happen for you. And kind of like, sorry, here's, here's an immature fertility place and kind of walked out. I was in such a state of shock. I think when I went to my car, I didn't even tell my husband this, I went to my car and I cried because one, you know, I got married late. And, you know, I'm, I'm old school. My mom is very old school. You know, you, you have kids when you get married, that type of thing. So that's what all my siblings did. That's what I was going to do. And, but to hear her say it to me, Nathan, it was like, she don't, I don't think she understood how she crushed me that day. I think she was probably thinking she was helping me by telling me, oh, well, you already at a certain age. Just, it's not going to work for you. You just, you need donor eggs. But I just, I felt like. You know, you're a woman and you feel like, okay, this is the one thing I'm supposed to be able to do, right? As a woman. And when it's gone and it's taken from you, you feel kind of less than, but the way someone tell you in a certain way, you even feel worse because it's just like, um, <laughs> you just took everything from me. I mean, my husband has children, so that's where I get my children from, but still I'm like, I was crushed. So what do you say to that woman, maybe not of my age or maybe someone of my age about, cause I do have a friend who's married now and they really want to have a baby and she is around about 44, 43, something like that. And they haven't, they're going through fertility trying to try. So what advice do you give them? How can that person have some type of hope? Well, if there's any hope to give a person of that age. <laughs> yeah, that's, I mean, that's a heck of a, a, a story for you. You know, when yeah. His doctor's. Um, let me tell a very brief story because I think it'll help to illustrate what I'm trying to say. So 10 to 15% of, of healthy pregnancies in the first term will end in miscarriage. And mm-hmm. we doctors use that statistic as a means of trying to make people feel better, right? Because when you're in a clinical day and you see 12 people per day, let's say, mm-hmm. probably at least one miscarriage or something called a preg- uh, a um. You could have a blighted ovum where there's an embryo, but or there's a, a pregnancy that that takes place, but just a gestational sac forms, but no embryo with a heartbeat. There's also yeah. something called a chemical pregnancy where you technically have em- like like a um, a gamete. The two gametes meet. You've got the sperm and the egg that meet, but it never develops into anything in the uterus. It's just like it's like when you light a firecracker and it just goes like a little dud. Mm-hmm. Um, so we see this happen at least daily when you're in the clinic. And we, we, we tend to believe that, oh, you know, hey, it's really common by sharing that information, it's going to make it easier for the woman in their, in their partner who's experiencing this, this loss, right? Mm-hmm. What we don't know is were they excited about the pregnancy in the first place? Maybe it was an accident, maybe the condom broke or whatever. And they're actually, yeah. um, we also don't know um, 
um, if maybe they this was like their fifth attempt at at IVF and they've been like a hundred thousand dollars broke now because their their fifth uh, their fifth try, which isn't that common that you'd go fifth five cycles, but you know it's twelve to fifteen k per pop. Mm-hmm. Or that you might try five times, and this is a loss. We don't know if you have that whole story back. Yeah. In um, and maybe you are forty-eight, and it was like this miracle opportunity. And we just say, "Oh, sorry." You know what we do is we stick this big phallic wand with a big condom on it, jam it into your vagina, and just like wrangle it around, trying to look <laughs> for stuff. And we're like, yeah. we're not looking at this person, we're like, "Oh, you know what? I don't see a heartbeat." Mm. Well, okay, okay, sweetie. Why don't you just get dressed and um, we'll get some blood work at the lab and we'll see you back in two weeks. And that's it. Like that's the mm-hmm. whole business. This person sitting bare butt on this crinkly paper with bright lights, completely undignified to begin with. Yeah. These these clinics suck. Um, yeah, they do. This goo now in their vagina and mm-hmm. it's just this impersonal sort of penetration with, you know, you get the point. I mean, if yes. I'm sure has been to a gynecologist's office. Um, I personally don't do clinical. I don't do the clinical thing because I hate it so much. I actually mm-hmm. do it remotely. If you need a pap smear, go to your local family practitioner or whatever. I do all the other. I do like all the really important stuff like counseling around this. Yeah. Uh, so anyways, you had really asked like, what hope is there or what, what should we talk about? Yeah. Uh, think about, you know, fertility beyond the age of, let's say, I don't know, after the age of 35, people seem to act like you've turned into a yeah. Party. But I've taken care of women well into their 40s who have had natural conceptions, totally uncomplicated births. Mm-hmm. The thing is that as you get older, we can't control your chronological age, right? Yeah. You were born 45 years ago or 48 years ago in your case. So yes, mm-hmm. you're going to have less eggs around yep. in order to ovulate and perhaps meet a sperm. Now, does that mean it's impossible to have a baby? Well, the question would be, are you ovulating? If mm-hmm. you're not ovulating and if you're not having regular predictable 26 to 30 day cycles, then you probably aren't ovulating, but there's mm-hmm. still eggs in there. Could you have those eggs harvested? Well, that's mm-hmm. where we're actually getting into the realm of what is controllable. And what is controllable for any woman is to optimize this type of food and self love that you are um, honoring yourself with every single day, regular yeah. exercise. Um, trying to keep your blood sugars regulated and, you know, being overweight or being whatever is not what I'm talking about here. What I'm talking mm-hmm. about is more nourishing yourself, not only through food, but maybe through less cigarettes, less alcohol, mm-hmm. maybe like being still once in a while and putting your hands on your heart and just remembering, God, it's fucking great to be alive. Sorry. Yeah. For- That's okay. Listen, I curse all the time on here. <laughs> <laughs> How are your connections to um, your other children to your mm-hmm. partner, like all of this stuff actually plays into on a on a very metaphysical, but also a very direct experience with yeah. how, um, the quality of your eggs, the quality of your uterine lining, how regulated your endocrine system is going to work from the brain to the adrenals to your thyroid to your gonads. Getting all of your lifestyle dialed in is the one thing that really is in your control. And if you're determined to have a kid beyond, you know, the typical age, which, you know, anybody over 40 trying to get pregnant is going to receive the same messaging they did from, from their, from your doctor. Yeah. Uh, So controlling the things that you can control is really what my focus is on. Like, listen, we can't change the fact that you were born with all of your little eggs and you've Mm -hmm. gone through most of those throughout your life. Mm -hmm. Um, If you had chemotherapy, you're going to perhaps have not that much 
that many eggs to choose from. Mm -hmm. But if it is in your control to eat more healthy and to do all these things, then even if you do go the route of getting an, a donor egg and maybe your, you know, your partner's sperm is allowed to mm -hmm. make those eggs, then we implant those embryos into your uterus, the likelihood of you not having complications related to these procedures and all the hijacking with hormones and all this other yeah. stuff, not to mention that that investment's going to stick and you're going to have a baby in nine and a half months. Yeah. Again, all of it, it always comes back to how can we best use your resources and your time to optimize the environment and the invitation for the spirit of this baby to, to enter your womb and to grow into a little human in nine yeah. months. Yeah. 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 That, I mean, that, that's really good. Cause I, I guess it was just sometimes, you know, women, certain women over 40, like so over 35, they really try to give them like no hope, you know what I mean? So it's like, it's hard. It's not going to happen, you know? And as women, we do look at that time when we know that time is ticking and we know that clock is ticking and we're kind of like, you know, and I think people need to understand, because maybe you can explain a geriatric pregnancy to people, because a lot of times people think, well, I'm not 50. Why am I geriatric? You know, and I and I myself even feel like, what is geriatric? That does seem like somebody that's really old. Why would they consider even after 35 a geriatric pregnancy? So kind of explain that to us so we can all have a better understanding of what that is and what that means. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's a great question. So we use the term gel geriatric, although I think more commonly now we just call it elderly pregnancy, which doesn't I know. sound really good. Um, it doesn't sound better at all. Doesn't sound good at all. Um, so the, the concern after the age of 35, and by the way, not every country in the world uses these same sort of standards, I suppose. Yeah. The after the age of 35, the absolute or the relative risk of bad things happening goes up. And it's important to remember red, relative risk versus absolute risk. Mm -hmm. Absolute risk would be like there is a one in, sorry, I just yanked this out. There That's is okay. a one in a thousand chance of something happening to you, right? And if you do that, so that's absolute risk. If I then say, if you do it this way, it becomes double the risk. That's a one in 500 chance. So we have said it doubles the risk that that bad thing is going to happen. Let's say that driving your car and getting in a car accident is twice as, as, as high when there's snow on the road, right? But the absolute risk of you being in a car accident is still, you know, one in 500, which is way less than 1%. Mm -hmm. So present the risks posed to a woman at, who's pregnant over the age of 35, we have to consider, are we talking relative risk? Or are we talking about mm -hmm. absolute risk? You had brought up um, black women's mortality and morbidity, but what's mm -hmm. from mortality, meaning the likelihood of you dying in childbirth as a black woman, the absolute risk is still way, way, way less than 1%. Mm. Two to three times greater risk compared to white women. Yeah. It's a relatively high risk, but the absolute risk is still very low. So when yeah. you're pregnant at the age of 35 or greater, you have a greater chance of you have a greater chance of everything from the baby having growth issues, the placenta having issues and needing to be requiring some sort of intervention early in the pregnancy um, or even later in the pregnancy, like induction. Mm -hmm. uh, you have a greater chance of developing things like hypertension, preeclampsia, yeah, gestational diabetes or whatever. But if we compared a, let's say, 40-year-old super healthy person 
you know, it doesn't matter what the, the race or whatever that we like to tabulate. You could be a super healthy person who eats the most nutritious food, gets regular exercise, sleeps nine hours a day, has a daily meditation practice, has everything dialed in. And the likelihood of those things happening to you can't be, you can't apply the data set because you might be healthier than a 25 year old who's pregnant. Mm -hmm. Even though they're 25 and thin, they use methamphetamine every day and McDonald's because it's the only thing that they can afford because they're living on the street or, you know, whatever else you can create these incredible scenarios. The point is, is that it has to be personalized. So I've taken care of a lot of 42 year olds who can conceive naturally because they have everything dialed in. Mm-hmm. I've had 28 year olds who are looking at IVF and it's, it's partly because we haven't really dialed in their health. Um, that's yeah. not, there is such a thing as premature ovarian failure or insufficiency where maybe even before the age of, of 45 or 50, suddenly your ovaries stop working and you're like 37 and in menopause. But that is very, very, very rare. Yeah. You know, because I think a lot of times people think about women over 35, they always think about birth defects. You know, they make you feel like, oh, you have a child at over 35 or especially over 40, your child is going to have some type of birth defect. And I think that's what we think about. We think about geriatric. We go straight, our mindset goes straight to, oh, wow, we can have children with birth defects. And I guess, I mean, I guess it's not true because- you know, people, it can happen to anybody. It's not like your age is the reason for it. I mean, you're the doctor, you tell me, cause I'm just assuming. <laughs> well, uh, birth defects occur generally speaking for two reasons. One is that mm-hmm. there's a sort of chromosomal issue, right? Mm-hmm. Let's say like trisomy 18 is a really, um, relatively common trisomy that can actually lead to a very, very challenging, um, diagnosis, uh, yeah. issues, the heart, um, the feet, you can have brain malformations, like the brain may not even develop at all, but mm. you have a baby that is able to breathe and swallow for a yeah. days or days after the birth. Is that because you were old? Partly, mm. but it's not entirely due to age. There are some young, very young women who also get that diagnosis. So again, it's, yeah. it's not if you're old, you're going to have birth defects. There is a, ch- a chance, there's a much greater chance of having a chromosomal issue that will also be associated with birth defects. Yeah. Um, we also know that older sperm may have something to do with autism. Some, some mm. autism. We don't know. It's, it's hard to put like a causative relationship in place here. Yeah. But the other really important thing is what you're putting into your body. Are you living next to a giant 5G tower? Are you Mm -hmm. in front of a microwave cooking food that is all, it's not even great food if it's being cooked in the microwave? Um, Are you eating well, sleeping well, moving well, all of those things? Those are all relevant to the conversation around birth defects. And if you're um, severely obese, like your BMI is over 40, Mm -hmm. or you have very, very poorly controlled diabetes, likelihood of miscarriage goes up, and Mm -hmm. the cardiac defects goes up. So for women who have really bad diabetes or who have, um, you know, a BMI that's way higher than they, you know, than when they were younger, um, we do tend to look at the heart a little bit more carefully. But again, the relative risk is higher. It's not an absolute risk of like 50-50, your baby's going to have a birth. Yeah, yeah. We have have time with that stratification of risk. Wow. That's, I mean, this is, this, I I feel like I could talk to you all day, Nathan. (laughs) Good. <laughs> it's so easy to talk to you. I mean, you're just so knowledgeable on just everything that you're saying. And, you know, be, before we close the show, do you think 
as a parent, as a woman, you should have a birth plan. Is it okay to, to have something planned out for yourself to have the questions and just to know, like I said, all your options. And like you said, also, you know, letting women know, like, take care of your body, your body will take care of you, you know, because it seems like that's the kind of like the repeating thing that you're saying, like, Hey, yeah. take care of your body, eat the right things, exercise and be as healthy as you can be. And then your body will then produce what you need it to do. Yeah, I think that, uh, so my other specialty, my other board certification, I'm, I've got two, I'm a dual board certified. I mean, I got mm-hmm. two the one is OBGYN, the one is hospice and palliative care. Mm-hmm. At the end of life, we, we hold near and dear these, these um, documents called advanced directives, which, te- which tells your family, your doctors, whoever, in your writing with your signature, that I would not find this level, this quality of life acceptable. Or mm-hmm. I want you to do everything possible so that I have every last moment alive. Even if I'm not yeah. conscious or able to speak, I've got bed sores, doesn't matter. I don't want you to, quote, give up. Really, the way that, that the language that I'm using here mm-hmm. is, has to be personalized to the person because we don't know yeah. who they are. We don't know what their story is, their preferences are, their values, their beliefs, whatever. So these advanced directives serve us at the end of life. Now, a birth plan is sort of like an advanced directive ahead of your birth. Mm-hmm. It's meant to reflect what your values are, what your beliefs are, what your preferences are, what your story is, what your fears are, what your joys are. It's it's meant to tell the story of Shawnee. Mm-hmm. And from that document, it's not meant to be a, do you want this or do you want that? Do you want this? Do you want that? Um, but that's actually what it's become. I think the, yeah. the really great purpose of a birth story is almost like to think of it as a mission statement or a value, a vision statement for what you ideally would like to experience in childbirth. And then anybody who receives that document can try to learn in just a couple short paragraphs, this is what's important to my client. I don't use the word patient because pregnant people are not patients. You're not sick. Mm-hmm. So, um, But I'll use the word patient just because that's probably what most people are familiar with. Um, anybody who reads that statement, this document, is now going to know what they can do to best honor you. And we all took an oath to take care of people. We love taking care of people. So yeah. we don't know how to do that if we're just meeting you for the first time. You're about to this incredibly um, important spiritual transformation, the sacred rite of passage that is childhood. Yeah. So I always recommend that everybody be as educated as they want to be. My wife did not care to know. She had the yeah. two biggest births I think I've ever been to. It's <laughs> at home, by the way. The first was in the hospital. Yeah, and, uh, she didn't like the idea that reading childbirth education books and whatnot started with all the scary stuff. Like, yeah, scary stuff can happen. It does. Like, I don't need to know that. It does, right? Like every mm-hmm. everybody sent me their books because of my platform and what I do in the world. And I was like, I, I said, here's all the books they sent me. <laughs> like every book on the market. Yeah. Like, nope. Nope. <laughs> Smart woman. Smart woman. <laughs> So, um, so I do recommend that people educate themselves to the degree that they want to be educated. You, you know, there's very, very little in our control. So the biggest lesson that I try to impress upon my clients, if I'm, whether or not I'm attending their home birth or they're, you know, hiring me for some remote sort of counseling care throughout the pregnancy to make sure they understand risks, benefits, alternatives is that you have to surrender to this process to some degree. Mm. The more you try to control it, the more that the, the the bull just tries to buck you off, you know, and yeah. I mean, the the sort of essence of the experience is going to become harder if you try to you know I- I impress too many controls over it, you know. Yeah. In other words, 
The more I know, the more, the better my birth will be. Sometimes that's not totally true. You need to really kind of lean in and just feel um, educated to the degree that you feel, you know, is appropriate. So that's, that's, that's what I have to say about birth plans. I actually think they're not necessary if mm. your healthcare provider, whoever that is, a midwife or doctor knows you really well. Yeah. Uh, they're going to get to spend way more time with you. They're going to know exactly what you want or don't want mm-hmm. and you don't need to make a document for them. The document yeah. is sort of your ongoing conversation with them. Whereas doctors, we may have never met you. We don't know what your preferences are. We don't know how educated you are. We don't know what your story is or your, your beliefs are. So um, having a document can be helpful. Yeah, definitely can. So, wow, this, this was a good conversation. And like I said, I feel like it can go on and it can go further because I know people always have so many questions around pregnancy and birth, uh, fertility and stuff. So I appreciate you for coming on the show, for taking time to to come on the show. And before we end, I do ask all my uh, my guests this one question. Um, what advice, what was some of the best advice you received from a woman? So in our parenting, my my wife is a stellar human. Um, she's yeah. incredible she's beautiful through and through. I mean, like she just has it all mm. and she has an advanced degree. She just kind of gets things. She feels into it. She's an emotionally very intuitive about what people need. And one of the biggest things for me that she has taught me actually will we'll do too. And I'm just going to pick on my wife because she has been like a sage, um, yeah. the sage kind of guide for me through certain things. And, and I, for her, mm-hmm. But the first thing was that when we were trying to get pregnant, I was very frustrated because we didn't get pregnant right away. In fact, we actually mm-hmm. took six to eight months before we conceived with our first. And we have two little girls, by the way. They were three and a half and one and mm-hmm. a half. Um, yeah. So she said, remember, this is not like we are not entitled to have anything. We're not entitled to have kids. We're not entitled to anything. Um, mm-hmm. being, um, being gifted with a child is just that. It's a gift. So conceiving for anybody out there, you're not entitled to conceive. It doesn't matter how much money you have in the world. There's more more to this than sperm meets egg. This is a gift. If you get mm. blessed within a couple months of pregnancy before a miscarriage, it is a gift and honor it as a gift. The other thing mm. is um, in our daily interactions with everybody, it's not our job to tell people how to be or to, to how to show up in the world that there's a right or wrong to being successful, to having sex, to you know, wiping our ass. There's, there's yeah. no right way to do it. The only thing that we can really control, is, and this is actually very relevant for parenting, is our um, parenting is as much about learning to manage your own emotions and reactions to other people, in this case, two little tiny people that have no clue you know, up from down. Yeah, um, about managing our own emotions, as it is about trying to help you know guide them to become better people. And I actually mm. think you could actually you could actually apply that to almost every personal relationship that you have in the world. You're right. Wow, that that's really good. I really love that. And it's you're not. Um, it's it's a gift. It's not something you're supposed to have. It's a gift. I really like that. And I think that's something that we all need to understand. You know, it's, it's a gift. It's not what you're, you're not supposed to have. It's not what you, you know, you think you just cause you want me supposed to have it, but you, it's a gift that you have and you've treated as such an honor as a gift. And also the advice with parenting. Oh my God, we could talk all day about parenting. <laughs> We'll save that for part two, Shawnee. (laughs) Yeah, we'll save it for part two because I just had Jim White on and 
he talked a lot about how to parent teens and it was so good. And he always, he talks about leave from a place of love versus parent from a place of fear. And it's, it's just so awesome because it kind of correlated what you just said. So, um, Nathan, listen, I don't want to hold you. It's been an hour. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I, I know this show is going to resonate with so many of my audiences, so many of my um, people that listen, just a lot of my friends too, who are trying to conceive. Um, who are younger and some are just a little, um, not older, but just around my age, but just knowing that there's options and knowing that you can ask the questions and understanding more understanding about home births and being able to have, um, that as an option. So thank you so much for coming on and taking the time to talk with us. I really appreciate you. It's my pleasure. Thanks again. Thank Yeah. All right, guys, listen, I am Shawnee Sanders. This is the girl techno podcast, and we will see you next time. Thank you for listening to the Girl Techno Podcast. We really hope this episode gets you one step further in your dream of becoming an entrepreneur. If you like this episode, please leave us a review. Once you leave us a review, we will shout you out on our next episode. Now, in order to qualify for the shout out, all you have to do is leave a review, screenshot the review, tag Girl Techno Podcast in your stories, and you will get a shout out in our next episode. Until then, guys, thank you so much for listening, and we will talk to you next time. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.